Henriksen? Serengeti waited until Henriksen looked up at the camera. Osage and Vale of Tears came here. Barlow was right behind them. They're not here now, and I want to know why. I want to know where they went. I want to know what happened to them. She dropped the calm, serene tones and let the anger show through in her voice. Henriksen cocked his head to one side, giving the camera a considering look. And then he nodded, just once, and looked away, barking orders at comms. Kusikov? Aye, sir. Kusikov's muffled response came from somewhere beneath the comms station. He extracted himself and climbed to his feet, slipping a multi-tool surreptitiously into his pocket. He'd obviously been fiddling with something. He always was in his spare time, insisting Serengeti's comms package and language routines needed improvement. Serengeti didn't like people messing with her systems, and Henriksen knew it. For the love of God, Kusikov, stop messing with the equipment. Yes, sir, sorry, sir. The automatic response accompanied by a mischievous, most definitely not sorry smile. Cut the shit, Kusikov. Kusikov's smile withered, sobering up quickly under Henriksen's withering gaze. Sorry, sir, he said, doing his best to sound sincere. You are that, Kusikov. Now, if you're done screwing with Serengeti systems, maybe you could actually do your fucking job. Henriksen didn't swear often. Well, he used damn a lot, but that really didn't count. So when he did, it got the crew's attention. Fast. Aye, sir. Kuzikov saluted smartly, all business now. He reached for the cables dangling from his station, jacking relays into the ports in his wrists and neck, grabbing the comms visor from the panel where he'd set it and slipping it over his eyes. He was interesting, this one. Arrogant, cocky as hell. And yet, one of the brightest human minds Serengeti had come across in her travels. She wasn't quite sure if she liked Kusikov, but she respected him. She just hoped he never figured it out. If he did, she'd never hear the end of it. That was Elizabeth Wiley narrating Serengeti by J.B. Rockwell. Liz is an award-winning narrator experienced in a wide range of audiobook genres, including both historical and literary fiction, as well as biography and memoir. She is often sought out for her agility with dialects, rich character work, and facility with complex language. Liz is also Professor Emerita of the College of William and Mary, where she taught acting, voice and speech, dialects, physical theater, and Shakespeare performance. Elizabeth Wiley, welcome to Serving the Story. Thank you, Stephen. What a what an honored welcome that was. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah, I really enjoyed Serengeti. I was actually working on I was working on a different piece in a related genre at the time. And I really feel like realizing afterward that a lot of my choices were really kind of influenced by having paid attention to the work you were doing. Because, you know, character in non-sentient beings is a weird thing to think mm. about. Yes, it is. Well, I'm flattered that that gave you some positive modeling or whatever to go off of. Yeah, Serengeti, and I don't do a lot of science fiction. I've done some short story collections and then the two by J.B. Rockwell. 
or no, three <laughs> by J.B. Rockwell. It's been, I mean, and that one is six yeah. years ago. So it's like, oh, I haven't heard that in a long time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Serengeti is the name of the sentient ship. Yeah. And she definitely has a emotional content as we heard at the beginning. It's like usually she stays calm and it's her job to keep everyone else calm. But you could hear her anger coming through as things were getting urgent. Wow. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah. It, it was like, I mean, what I think I kind of took away from the whole thing and what I um, was, it started to feel like doing mask work. Right. right. And it's not even quite that because when you're really doing mask work theatrically, you bring the mask up and the mask becomes a filter and you are moving through the filter. But weirdly, what I kind of took away and, and I brought to this um, intelligence and work that I was doing was the idea that the character is built in that mask. The It is this thing that is outside and you are still moving through it. And I think that that's really difficult to do in this place where it's all being done by voice. I really appreciate your analogy of working with mask. This very still structure, this piece, once the actor puts it on, it does take on a life. And the audience really does witness, take in what they interpret from it, but it's also how the actor is moving and enlivening that mask. So what is the mask here? Is the, the mask has to be the voice, or we're thinking of, oh, the mask is the artificial intelligence feature of it. It's an interesting uh, thing to think about, because also in these books, we've got this sort of omniscient uh, ship, mm -hmm. Serengeti, but then she's got all of these little kind of R2-D2s, kind of minions that run around and do the little technical work and so forth, and baby ones, too. So it's like um, the two little bots created a small little bot, and it's like their baby. So, And those voices are different because they're not as omniscient. They're, they're more right. programmed. And yet, in the way that she wrote it, those little beings have just as much investment emotionally in their little world. So it's, yeah, there's so many layers here, Stephen. Yeah. Oh. And there's also the weird thing about how the limits of body change when you are not an individual being. Where where is consciousness? Where where am I centrally? Where is where where is the equivalent of my toe? Is <laughs> even becomes a different kind of perspective when you're doing something like this. And I mean, I I enjoy this. I think even more than that when you're dealing in science fiction with an alien species, you know where mm. where the grammar might be different or things like along those sorts. I really enjoy the idea of the point of view shifting into something so alien that it's non-biological. And you know what? Just as you were saying about uh, where is my toe, that sparked in me, oh my gosh, I really do think about when I am an embodied being, be it human or non-human, but mm -hmm. with a body, I do think about the body, even as I'm just 
recording the voice. Um, we talked about Kusikov tucked under the desk, under the console doing things, and then he even as the narrative is describing him, and then I'm thinking about my body being crunched up and getting up from under the console and having that smile that sort of withers. And all of those physical things are part of the back burner that's informing everything. But you're right. When I voiced Serengeti, it was all in my head. Yeah. There's there's this wow. weird disembodied feeling. And yeah, right. I mean, I'm I'm listening. And for me, it, it becomes every time I'm listening to an audiobook, it becomes a class. Right. Mm. And I, I choose as much on story and author as I do on narrator. And it becomes that thing where, I mean, I remember going to see big deal movies with a bunch of other people I was in acting class with. And that mm. was always a plus and a negative because you can't enjoy the movie if you're being surrounded by people looking up at an acting choice on the screen and having a reaction to the <laughs> acting choice. You know, yeah, yeah. so it becomes yeah. a whole different kind of experience there. But um, yeah, I had listened to this and I had really enjoyed it. And then suddenly I found myself in the middle of a series with a sentient computer going, okay, this is, you know, this is an interesting thing. And and I found that same sort of moment, like going, this feels different to do. But you were talking about body and awareness and so we all tend to work in these little boxes, little padded rooms where we're talking to ourselves. And do you record mm -hmm. standing up or sitting down? Usually, most of the time I'm sitting down. Every once in a while I think, ah, I should stand up. And then I, I have an adjustable desk in here and then I get out my little squishy pad to stand on and I adjust it. Um, and I got the adjustable desk thinking, oh, I'll, you know, I'll do an hour standing, an hour sitting, an hour. And, you know, that's just a lot of, uh, yeah. I mostly right. sit. <laughs> so with the fact yeah. that we're doing this focus really long form, that we're doing this sort of marathon of a voiceover, really. I mean, if we think about commercial work as that sprint, this is really sort of that relay, not even relay race because we're alone. This is that that marathon piece. Marathon, what yeah. What do you do? I mean, I, and I know that physicality helps me with character. But the acting isn't purely vocal. How do you wind up working with your body when we're working in such a small space? I absolutely do work with my body. And let me try to explain it. Overtly, I, I do make a lot of hand gestures. And sometimes I have to go back and say, oh, I didn't. I thought that shirt was a silent <laughs> shirt, but maybe I should go change into, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I use my hands a lot to help... Uh, if especially if the character mm -hmm. or no 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 here okay i'm backing up i am doing this incredibly dense hundred thousand years of poland history right now mm -hmm. <laughs> learning everything about the polish language um so i'm not even talking character right now just i'm talking these dense mm -hmm. paragraphs that i have to think about okay over to the east and then the north south trade route and it helps me to communicate the structure of thought when I use my hands. So now I'm going to go to character. This is probably the core question, isn't it? This is like, where does character begin for you? Because that is such a personal choice actor-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where does it begin? I'm not even going to answer that question yet. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, 
But uh, because there are so many different answers, even for one actor, there's many different answers actually for me. But I would say the the physicalization starts internally. I would say it's sort of a a vertical line just in front of the spine, so kind of right down the center of my body. So that um, whatever is going on. Mm-hmm say emotionally for the character, there's some internal muscle movements that happen and it might manifest invisibly to someone looking at me, but I feel it in a tightening of the right shoulder or in the gut or in the way my feet are resting on the floor. Mm-hmm. And then I have to be conscientious as a performer of letting those things go when I'm not voicing the character when I'm in the breathing space or when I'm in the uh, narrator space. I do use my face a lot. Mm-hmm. And and so going back to our mask discussion, um, it, whenever I was working with mask, it would be hard for me to disengage my face and just use my body. I mean, I don't think I would use my face instead of my body, but but I'm a very facial, emotional, expressive person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would not be a good poker player <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. One thing yeah. you said at the beginning there was whether or not the listener hears it, that there's this piece for you. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, it's like we have to do a lot to get into this place where where the reality is with us in whatever way we look at that, regardless of whether we're talking method or whatever, you know, where the reality comes from. We have to get to a place where there's something that is very real for us about the story as we're relaying it, as we Mm -hmm. are narrating it. And really a lot of what you're talking about are the pieces that feel like they, they need to feed that fire for you for that healthy flame of the narrative to be able to be mm-hmm. received through the narration. It's like, these are the bits of kindling for that fire. Yeah. It's not just, you know, oh, I'm playing someone who uh, ran away from home. Of course, it's not about, well, let's think about the time that I ran away from home. Well, no, you're not going to have all the same ex- exact experiences of everybody you play, but you find the parallel. And so, you know, for a beginning actor, yeah, let's find a parallel to needing to leave a situation so badly that you just become reckless. And after a certain amount of time, after some training, after thinking about performance experience, and certainly by the time you're Mm -hmm. our age, you don't need to iterate those parallels as much. You just know they're there, right? So that when I am reading a character who feels trapped by her job and her situation and she can't, you know, she she feels like she needs to stand up for herself. I might not ever have been in that kind of job or that kind of um, environment exactly, but I don't have to think, I don't have to dig right. up what is that parallel. I just go, oh, oh yeah, that feeling of, tra-. and it can be an absolutely, not absolutely, it can be almost an abstraction mm-hmm of in that parallel, that feeling trapped in a job and I need to stand up for myself, that can almost become a, a, a sense of physicalized 
feeling trapped like these walls are closing in on me and I need to stand up for myself. I need to get strength in my legs. And, you know, so, yeah, those parallels can be parallels in situation, parallels in emotion, but they can also become physicalized through an abstraction, which is something that happens for me automatically at this point. So I'll just tag onto this for a minute, and I hope I'm not derailing no, your no, um, no, no. line of questions for a follow, second. follow where we go. <laughs> I just remember when I, it was my first year of grad school at University of Minnesota, and we were paired with um, some company actors from the Guthrie who were our mentors. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to get paired with Claudia Wilkins, who is uh, just a, a dame of the Twin Cities Theater and marvelous. And I remember her working on um, maybe a monologue or a scene with me and, and giving me feedback. And I remember thinking, at, and, and I went to grad school like almost right after college. So I was very young in my growth at that mm-hmm. point. And um, I remember thinking to myself, how does she, how does she make that leap to what the tactics and intentions are? How does she make that leap to know what to, how to guide me? How, or how, when she, and it just seemed like such a far, it's like, um, how am I ever going to get there? I don't know how to put this into words. I don't know how to find it. Over repetition and practice and experience, it's, it, it, oh, it's there, you know, I don't have to, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And you just did it in that, as you were telling the story, your voice evolved back into graduate school you. If you were to wind this back and listen, you mm. you, you jumped into that character of yourself. You actually put on younger Liz in that moment as you were relaying it in such a wonderfully clear way. Oh, oh I'm glad you <laughs> observed that. Wow. Well, I mean, because it's it, yeah. it's it's pointing out what you're saying that at this point there's a lot of things that are happening by instinct, which yeah. can be difficult to like deconstruct the what and the why. And I've brought this up when I've talked to other people about things. There's a, a Sanford Meisner quote where he he gets asked how long does it take to become an actor, and he says twenty years. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, and the whole point is yeah. you have to live your life and you have to keep doing this work until you're not thinking about it anymore. Right. I mean, when you were right. describing that complexity, I was thinking about watching a musician play at the Blue Note in New York. In addition to just really loving the music, just watching fingers that have the instinctual knowledge of where they need to move next and knowing that there isn't a conscious moment, you know, that is controlling that. Yes, it gets into the this I would have to dust off a lot of rust on my piano playing to to get back to those days of having something memorized and just you just sit down and play it without even thinking. But but that's exactly you know, it just becomes part of your cells, your muscles. You just it's just there. Right. So yeah. When you're working with a young actor and you're working with sense memory as you were talking about earlier. I always feel like there's this trap when people sort of see that as the end instead of the beginning, Mm. you know, that it becomes incredibly important when you don't have those points of view, those points of reference to spend time trying to build them. And both you and I have done a fair amount of World War II audiobook recording. 
And those can be really difficult to bring home at the end of the day to family. Right. And so you have to like develop these ways of leaving those things in the booth or Mm -hmm. or transitioning so that you can then be yourself with your family and then put back on the heavy cloak of the work that you're doing or whatever your personal metaphor is to get yourself back into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's essential. And even from an approach to acting, I think that's essential too. As much as I might really appreciate the performance of an actor who goes all in, mm-hmm. um, I'm aware that my ex David was a, had a, a small role and did some fight choreography for the movie Lincoln. Mm-hmm. With Daniel Day Lewis, and he he said, "Oh yeah, Daniel Day Lewis. He was Lincoln twenty four seven. You could not address him as Mister Day Lewis. It was Mister President. Mm-hmm. What, even during you know breaks and lunchtime, and he was never out of character. And that works for him. That is great for him. I couldn't do it, and I'm not bringing in those big bucks either. I suppose, but um, <laughs> but you know, a person's got to have a life. You have to take care of yourself. We can't walk around carrying all of the stuff that our characters carry, or we just put ourselves into a state of disuse, disease, disease, and disease. Both ways of actually taking that. Exactly. So, exactly. I mean, when when you're dealing with particularly heavy material, do you have a way that you work into it and work out of it? Working into it, warming up, cooling down, warming up, cooling down, um, not just physically and vocally, but also in terms of getting my focus together. And of course, sometimes, a lot of times, I think with audiobook narrators, we, we kind of use the first page mm-hmm. as our uh, getting into our focus and then and then going back and going, oh, okay, wait, here I am. Let me start again. Maybe that gets the focus. If you allow yourself to really be present in the story or in the text, whatever it is, which is what we all want to do to get into that flow, that zone, mm-hmm. then the author takes you to that place and you ride with it. To get out of that place, it's taking a booth break. It's standing up, shaking it out, allowing yourself some deep breaths, some replenishing drinks of water, a little walk around. Yeah, you just you shake it out. And and then focus on the next task or focus on the birds outside in the trees and going out to get the mail. It's, it's a matter of giving yourself fresh incoming elements to take your focus. In fiction, I'm, I'm out of the booth probably at least between chapters. Sometimes if a chapter can be difficult or incredibly long, I will find a place where it feels like, you know, we've reached some sort of plateau, so I'm going to take the break here because I never like to break in the place where tension is building up or payoff is happening. Right. No, you have to ride that yeah, tide. Yeah, it's like trying to find where the commercial break would be. You know, exactly. and saying, all right, so here, this is this place where I'm going to take this time out. Often for me, those times outside the booth are physically silent. I'm not speaking, but that's when the director brain will kick in and, and I will have that director actor check in with myself, uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out where it's going. Do I feel like I need to back up a little bit? Have I been in it to this point? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That whole managing of the different hats that we need to do, you know, that whole juggling act. How is that for you in the moment when you're recording? It actually, you know, that too, I've come to a place where I feel like I have those instincts 
at hand. You know, if I, you know, how many decades ago as a young actor, I might have felt a lot more at sea and, and less sure of my choices. Out of all of the books that I've recorded, I think three have been directed. So I love having a director, but um, most of the time I, I don't. And I so I've come to really trust and depend upon the choices that I have brought. And every once in a while, you know, there's um, a choice that you're making and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I wish I had an outside ear to, you know, I wonder how that sounds. And and then sometimes you look back on a recording and think, oh, I should have, yeah, I, I shouldn't have gone that direct. Most of the time, though, it, I feel really good about my choices. And and even sometimes when I've made a choice that I think, oh, that was that voice was too young for that character. Mm-hmm. And then the author or the producer will come back and say, oh, I loved what you did with that. That was great. It's like, oh, okay, that worked. That worked. So, you know, sometimes we are our own toughest oh, critics, too. we definitely too. are. I mean, we, we are there micromanaging inside the moment. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it might be watching a movie and being inside Gene Hackman's head while you're watching him up on the screen, for example. You know, the, the, the internal dialogue there would be incredibly interesting, but it's not the movie. At that point, it's the actor. Right. And now that I've said that, I don't know why Gene Hackman was the, was, was the actor who came <laughs> out, but I must need to watch a Gene Hackman movie, I'm guessing. I love that Gene Hackman I, yeah, came up. No idea why. But so you're there in that moment. Often when, um, for me, it feels like the imperfections of recording an audiobook, for me, make it feel more like a stage performance than TV movie work where if the performance was fluid and felt good, even if I feel like, as long as I don't feel like I made a choice that is painting me into a corner, I will stick Mm -hmm. with that choice the same way that I would thinking, well, that was Thursday night, Friday night, I'll come back and the energy might be in a different place. And, you know, my onstage performance will be slightly different. I know people who will go back and act really like that cinematographer and need to have each moment completely perfect. And sometimes I feel like we have this battle between trying to find the perfection of the performance versus the reality of the performance. Oh, right. You know, and it's the same kind of comparison between long-form narration, like we're doing, and doing a short spot. Um, Like if someone says, uh, let's use one from the Brady Bunch and Shakespeare, who goes there? (laughs) If you just had that phrase to record, who goes there? Who goes there? Who goes there? I mean, you would do it, um, you know, a... a hundred different ways and think, I don't know what the client wants. They didn't give me enough information. I'm just going to But if we're recording a story, if we're recording long form, a book, the author has given us all of this information. And yes, there's not just one way to do it. There's a bunch, you know, as many as there are narrators who could narrate this Mm -hmm. book. But my choices that I've made will take me to a place that for the most part, I'm following the characters, the story, the energy that I've created with the author's words, and that's going to take me to the right place. Do I go back and say, oh, I mean, yeah, I go back now and then, but I definitely don't think I have to hit every phrase perfectly because there is no perfect. Yeah, I totally get you on the, we're in this live performance 
if you will, and it has a life. And as a whole, it will speak what it needs yeah, to. So as opposed to that ideal of the performance, and I realize that I'm I'm almost waxing classical philosophical as we're talking about like what is the ideal performance versus here here's this thing that's that's one part of it i think the other part of it is if that who goes there line is a point of view character or a character who's close to the point of view character you have a lot of information versus you know your characters are you know all the characters in your party come up to a gate and this character who we're only going to have for this scene says who goes there if that is yeah. all we have, we don't need that character's full life story in order to get no. to that particular moment and, and have that work. Can you imagine if we had to get everybody's full life story? We'd never get a book done. <laughs> but there is something, but there has to be something instinctual. Is this a guard? We're going into this a little bit. Is this a guard who's like, okay, kid? You're on. You're a man now. Go. It's like, oh my God, I've never uh, uh, taken this shift by myself before. <laughs> who who goes there? You know. I mean, right, so right. Maybe there's something, but <laughs> right. I mean, but but you would get that from the tone and the sense of the book. You know, you definitely yeah. have prepped, so therefore you know if they come back and encounter this guard again, if there's any reason why you need to do something that is more distinctive for it, you'll pull that out and do it. I have run into though with the number of people who have been finding their way into audiobooks recently, who've been working professionally in other things, whether it's equity people who are like stage work has gotten really difficult since COVID, you know, mm. or whatever, where they're coming mm -hmm. in, where they're mm. not used to needing to be the entire book. I have right. seen this sort of like, I don't feel like I know the characters well enough to do the story service. And I think that's I think that mm. it's an interesting point, and it's something that we're tending to do. And I'm wondering about, you know, I don't think it's a special set of skills as much as it's a different understanding of, of the work, uh, right. being the character versus being the story. Right. Absolutely. Because we being the story. Oh, I love that. Because yeah, if this is a if this is a minor character, a little side character, that just it just moves the story along. It, it, we don't want to get derailed and go into this whole cul-de-sac of this guy over here. It's just like yeah. So it does help to have that director's hat on and think: to what purpose is this character here mm -hmm. in the story? You know, and what is going to keep us in that spine of the book? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, you know no, I, mean. I, I know exactly where you're <laughs> um, going. Yeah, rather than uh, there is no such thing as a small role, you know, that's a different thing for all the members of your cast that you're working with on stage. You know, the more full life, the more three-dimensional all of the people are on stage, the richer your story. But we are the narrator, and so we've got to just take that story forward. If a forward. former student of yours were to have come up to you in the last year or two, and basically with, with that sort of a thing, so with the world changing so much and me seeing that you've been doing this work, what do you say to somebody who has trained in stage about what they should be aware of as they are about to attempt to make this shift into working in narration. It's almost like I'm asking you to be Polonius in that moment. Right. Uh, I know. <laughs> and I realized after it came out of my mouth how heavy that question was. 
<laughs> that's okay because you you know you already kind of set aside some of the things. It's like, well, let's say they're getting their technical information on you know the, what software should right. I use? What you know? But if I'm just talking about how their acting work up to that point, let's say on stage, might differ when they're in front of the mic reading a single narrator book. I would say that the thing that is most important is that it's not about them. And I guess that's important in an ensemble, in a play on stage as well, of course. But what I mean by that is what we what we always say, Stephen, it's like we have to put the work mm -hmm. at the front. We have to put the story at the front. And so that anything I do that takes the listener out of the story is something I need to think about. Okay, that's not serving the story. If it takes the listener out of the story because um, I've got technical issues, that takes us out of the story. If it takes us out of the story because I'm indulging myself with my interpretation of this character that doesn't necessarily match with what the author has written, then then that's something I have to look at. So there's so many ways that like, could happen. for example, doing an accent so realistically that you're impeding the ability of a listener to actually fully understand the words. Right. You were, like you were talking about doing this large Polish piece that you're working on. And I know from having done a work that was not only set in Poland, but then needed to have Polish Yiddish, which is a different accent. Oh, wow. Wow. And yes, so yeah. it's like, do I do the Polish Yiddish accent and then have people complain that my Yiddish accent is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> or do I do the generic Yiddish accent, which is not generic, it's actually Northwestern European as opposed to Southwestern mm -hmm. European. Because, mm -hmm. you know, just Yiddish is Spanglish. It's The standardization depends upon the, the other languages that are around it. Do I do right. that Polish Yiddish because it's the accurate one to do for this moment? Or do I do the one that's going to be more accessible? <laughs> What did you end up doing? I, I decided to do the Polish Yiddish in part because I have one grandmother who actually comes from that specific area, and it gave me the opportunity to work with my mother to say exactly how would your mother have said these words. Uh, I, I ran ran that by and decided to do that. And yeah, there are definitely I people complaining yeah. about and the the gems for me are the ones in that story where there are people say things like the narrator went out of his way to do the specific accent. So I've, I've borne the brunt of having done that because by making that decision, I, I know that I, I pulled a lot of those other people out of the story. I think I made the choice as an actor that wasn't the choice that better served the story. I think possibly doing those accents lighter and not that distinctly, might have pulled less people out of the dramatic moment. And sometimes we just can't yeah. know, because you can't please all the people all right. the time. <laughs> sometimes we just have to make a decision that we feel is the best in the moment, given what we know from the author, the, from the producer, from the, if we have a director, and, and just go with it. But at all the time, it's got to be 
is the story right. coming through in a way that, you know, I would want to listen to it. I listen back to things that I've recorded. I'll pull something and listen to it, and I'll think, oh, yeah, I, I want to listen to the rest of that story. I forget what happens. <laughs> you know, I want, I want to listen to that. I, I would hope that people who are getting into this work and are saying to themselves, oh, but I hate listening to my voice. It's like, wow, I, I hope you get over that <laughs> because you're going to be listening to your voice a lot. But, I mean, I do get it, because whenever I did camera work, I always had this sense of, oh, I don't, I don't know if I like looking at myself. So <laughs> I suppose we all have yeah, our things. I, I think, though, the camera work <laughs> thing has something else to it, because the person behind the lens on the other side of the camera has so much control over how you are presented and what view of you gets seen. Whereas, yes, the engineer definitely can can do things to make you sound fuller or do other things to your voice. I think there's a lot less, there, there's a much lighter hand happening. Yeah, so that is true. I think you are definitely getting something that is a lot closer to your performance in audio than when it's on camera where it's really how you are seen through the, you know, the camera person and the cinematographer, those layers mm -hmm. can really change a lot of your performance. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot more, a lot more layers. Definitely. I've been there where, where I'm listening to people talking about how what disturbs them are the parts that wound up on the cutting room floor, the parts that didn't make mm -hmm. it into the final take. The, mm -hmm. the version of the line that they said in a different take where they felt it was so much better and they just didn't use that one. Yeah. And yeah. we're totally in control of which take we're turning in if we're doing punch record. You know, yeah. I, I can go back and do it 10 times if I want to. <laughs> I, I know. I am just thinking, I, forgive my um, the way my brain works here, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm jumping Please. back to Serengeti yeah. for a second. And talking about choices and, you know, does it serve the story? Does it pull people out? And these little bots, and one of them, if I'm recalling, you know, this was a few years ago, Stephen, um, one of them was described as having this little high squeaky voice. And how high and squeaky mm -hmm. do you go before it's like, I don't want to hear that in my earphones. Um, yeah. You know, is that too much or? Right. <laughs> but you, so you're trying to honor what the author gives you, but it's like, yeah, but really that high and squeaky? And so I remember reading one listener review, which, you know, we always take with a grain of salt if we sure. take them at all. I, I try to avoid just your general listener comments because um, they can be all over the map on the same piece. But, you know, so so Serengeti, you know, won Audiophile's best sci-fi of 2016. But also at the same time on that one, I remember reading this comment that said, oh my God, what the hell was she doing with those high squeaky voices for the little robots? That is, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. I mean, no, you can't, you can't please no. all the people all the time. And, you know, I, no. <laughs> if I were doing that one again, I maybe I would take it down like the two whole steps. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. The less know. extreme version that gets spoken about so much is how do you deal with characters of the other gender? You know, how yeah. do you deal with people who are biologically male who you are narrating versus biologically female 
when right. they're coming up character-wise because there are right. so many different ways of handling that. Yeah, and the first place people want to go with that, people who are young in um, narration or young in their acting, is mm -hmm. with pitch. And sure, that can be an anchoring thing, but you have to deal with the pitch range mm -hmm. that you have as a performer. I've always been mm -hmm. an alto, and I have a you know this uh, depth of sound, but I can also I can sing soprano if I need to. But you have to look at all the different musicalities that all the the phrasings and the rhythms and the all the different qualities that can go into a voice. But what I want to I think add is that it depends a lot on what's happening around that character's voice in the mm -hmm. script. If I have a woman who, who I want to voice pretty close to where I am, but I'm going to give her a little more of an authoritative sound and, you know, and she's a police chief or something and, you know, and then, and then this man comes in does he have to be lower than? No, he doesn't have to be lower than her. He's—I don't know—he's going to have the qualities that that I was just coming around the corner and this guy came right. running up to me, and you know, so automatically I'm putting in a little. My go-to, and I—I I will admit this, this is mm -hmm. a confession. I put a little gravel in, probably more often than I need to with men. So there's my, my confession. Tenor is close enough to your alto that you and I, if we were singing in a choir, might actually be assigned the same notes to sing. And yeah. so yeah. often when I've got enough characters, I will try to find one woman who I will pitch lower than my mm -hmm. speaking voice, where I will usually have the right. main character. And I don't do that arbitrarily. I think about what that tends to imply to a listener if a woman's yes. voice has that depth to it, it has that red wine, has that texture in there, what does that imply? And so I look for that character in a story in part because I realize that my natural speaking voice is high enough that I can do that without that destroying somebody's uh, mm -hmm. perception of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and we want to allow a full range, not only among the characters that we choose, but within a single character, you want to also allow them a range so that they're not just monochromatic, unless they're written to be monochromatic. Right, right. Somebody who's playing you know, everything so yeah. close to their chest that you're never sure of their emotions, then you're going yeah. to work that that way. So if you're avoiding pitch, and you know, the whole pitch and placement and pacing and all those, and I know there are more that I'm not remembering in the moment, but do you know what you tend to go to first But when you're building that out? Because I always am trying to avoid pitch for that reason, because I feel like there's a stereotype. And if I conform to the stereotype, I feel like I'm doing Monty Python and not an audiobook. <laughs> you know, I have to add more than just male-female. Um, if it's a male... And I don't, I used to do a lot of romances when I first started narrating, but that was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and I did a ton of them. But I would note if it's a male lead who if, if there will be some sexual tension between him and another character, or for, you know, for whatever reason, this is a character that we're following through mm -hmm. the whole story. I know that that has to be a voice that I, that has to be easy to listen to as well as give me lots of information about the character. We do have a bag of voices we can pull out. 
we're not reinventing the wheel every oh, time. But then we try to give it enough individual information, texture, rhythm, placement, resonant quality that makes it a unique thing too. So yeah, I have to I think about that with some of the side characters. I depending on what information I have about them, I can make them a little more character. Or if they're really minor characters, then maybe it's just, you know, right. who goes there? <laughs> and then and then we don't hear right. from him again. I know there are you other know. examples, but I come back to this because this is usually where I, I'll run into it, in a courtroom scene where you're jumping mm. back and forth. And there are other, ah. other kinds of scenes where you're doing that. Are there things that facilitate your ability to move from one character voice to another? If I know that they're going to be going back and forth in proximity... I need to make the choices that are clear enough, especially if there's not uh, character attribution in the text. So I might say, well, you know what? I'm going to make this guy, I'm going to give him a little forward, a little more forward placement rather than, you know, taking him back and down a little bit um, so that I can contrast him to the people he's juxtaposed with. So I'll try to make some choices that are clearly distinguishable. But of course, you know, you got five brothers all having a family reunion. Right. right. <laughs> then um that then you've got to find a similar thread that says they're from this mm -hmm. family, but enough personality difference that helps the listener know who's talking. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a whole other problem. And I think people fall into something very specifically when you hit that. And the five brothers in one family thing, it's like, if you really do listen to siblings, they're tonally, they're never the same. But mm. they, pacing-wise, they may have a similar rhythm. They may have a similar sense of humor, right, which yeah. is more yeah. pacing. So understanding that maybe using pacing to determine who are siblings and who are not in a scene. So then that frees you up to then use very different other kinds of placement and setting of tone as long as the pacing is similar that should still then read as they are more related than the other people speaking. Right. Yeah. Right. The, it's like we can keep going down into the weeds of this. These are the conversations that I feel like aren't the ones that have gotten out there, which is the whole reason for doing this as a series and why reaching out to people like you who have taught was part of the reason why I wanted to do this. Just as you're saying this now, and I'm so glad you're doing this series, it's a great, you know, way to dig into stuff. Part of the joy of working in the classroom or working with a cast in a stage mm -hmm. production is that live, interactive place where you're reacting off of someone in the moment, in the here and now, and your response or your, it might spark something out of you that was completely unexpected and you takes you to a new spot and you've discovered something. Um, so the question is, how can we find that sense of discovery and play when we're working by right. ourselves? So if acting is reacting, then if you are both having the action and the reaction, how do you have that moment? Right. Wow. So part of that, uh, yeah, so part of, <laughs> I will answer that query 
or that wondering with a, a little, I don't think you would have asked me about this, um, but I also know that you won't mm -hmm. be surprised. Um, living with me is, <laughs> <laughs> living with me is something else. Um, as I'm sure many of us can probably mm -hmm. say, I I have a soundtrack. Either I'm trying to imitate the birds that I'm hearing out the window, or the Andrew's mm -hmm. listening to uh, C-SPAN, and I can't quite hear the content from the other room, but I can. Yeah. But I can hear the sound of the. And so I'll <laughs> I'll be imitating all the time sounds of a door creaking, mm -hmm. sounds of whatever is playing around me and it and this is kind of part of the joy and part of the madness right. <laughs> of being an actor in life right because i kind of live it but i will also say one of the downsides of that for me um is that sometimes the radio will be on mm -hmm. or whatever and i'll be repeating a word that somebody said on a bbc interview or whatever and I'll realize I've paid a lot of attention to the sounds of the words and the mm -hmm. vowels, et cetera, or the cadence or the you know musicality. But then I step back and I go, what the hell? Did, yep. what, were, what were they talking about? I got so, I zoomed in too far. Yep. And I have to remember to zoom out again. Yeah, I, I've gotten called on <sighs> that. Uh, so back in the day when my daughter was younger, driving her to school, if, if the BBC was on, Olivia would look at me because... She would know that if, you know, if Leila Fadl or or one of the other, you know, people was reporting from somewhere was going to start talking or if somebody was going to say a place <laughs> name, I was going to say the place name back or whatever was going on yep. when it was in whatever the language was. And the few times I didn't do it, she would like, the hands would go up in the, so, you know, the gesture, why not this time? <laughs> you know, so yes, yeah, you, you, yes. you get called on those things, but you're right. You need to do them sort of in that very same way that a musician watching somebody else play their, you know, the instrument they know is watching and listening in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Kathy, my kid's mm -hmm. stepmom, is a drummer and um, very subconsciously she won't even be thinking about it she'll be listening and to something or sitting at the table or whatever and and she'll be drumming mm -hmm. with her hands um a complicated drum rhythm that's where it's in her muscle memory you know she and she's carrying on a conversation at the same time <laughs> so yeah it depends on where our focus is in life and also kind of and we got there because of some way that our brain works the way that we process the sound, yeah, yeah it, it's fascinating. <laughs> it comes back to this actorly perspective and then the challenge in an audiobook being different from the challenge in a role because when you can commit 100% to the role is when everyone else around you is committing 100% to their role and then it is the job of the director and the other people to keep all of that in balance to make it something cohesive when you are every mm -hmm. character in the story <laughs> that's a different thing and, I mean, is this different for you when you are not the only narrator on a project, whether it's a dual narrator or or something different than that? Is it a different experience when you're sharing that within one story? I'm just finishing prepping a book 
that has uh, five mm -hmm. narrators, but all of our chapters are mm -hmm. separate from each other. Um, I have yet to do a duet right. kind of narration where we're you know going back and forth in the same chapter. So uh, if I, the character who I am in this you know mm -hmm. five person book, and I'm I'm doing all of you know Lisa's chapters, let's say. Um, I still have to know what my relationships are. Of course, mm -hmm. I have to read the whole book, but I have to get a sense of if I were going to narrate this whole book, what are all these people like? And sometimes we get to hear what the other narrators are doing, a little mm -hmm. sample anyway, and sometimes we don't. <laughs> and we just have to do our best to work with what the author has given us. I actually, just a little earlier, did a a book where there's three characters who have chapters, you know, named after them. And I did two of the three. I did a, you know, middle-aged woman and I did mm -hmm. an older woman. And so that was interesting where I had two of the characters and then, you know, the other one was a male. Um, there weren't a lot of characters in that book. It was, you know, side characters. It all took place on a vacation kind mm -hmm. of. So, the characters were limited, and that was it was fairly easy to do. There weren't a lot of place names to look up. There weren't a lot of, you know, these are people, kinds of people that I could recognize and understand, and it's going to be a nice right. beach read. But that doesn't mean, I'm, I mean, it still means that I have to think about what all the people who show up in the story, what are they like? Yeah. Have you done a lot of uh, I've shared? Done, I've done some. Sh I've just finished another one where I am the father's journal entries where somebody else is the primary narrator. And when I've been yeah, getting these stories, yeah. I've been mostly those sort of characters who are there in retrospect. So I feel like it's less important for me to know the voices of the main uh, narrators. I don't think that getting their performances beforehand with the kinds of roles I've gotten in those multicasts would have changed my choices because it's not a back yeah. and forth thing. It It is usually that, right. you know, they're going to open the father's journal or there's a few chapters that are the father's journals or whatever. And those tend to be the ones that I've gotten in those cases. So I'm like, yeah, I'm in the time capsule there. Yeah. You're in a time capsule. So even if you sound, and I'm mm -hmm. not talking from a you know engineering standpoint. Even if you sound like you're in a different space, it's because because right. it exists that right. way in the story. Right. That's so there cool. have been a lot of those when you yeah. were describing what you were doing with those two different characters. There, you actually reminded me of a very specific one of my favorite ones early on that I had listened to, which is three people's work who we love. The two men were uh, Simon Vance and Scott Brick, and and they mm. each did one point of view, and Kate Redding did two points of view. Oh, I love uh, And the too. reason why you have both Simon and Scott doing one point of view is one of the one of the narrators is American and the other one is male and British. And then the two women mm -hmm. are both British, but one is very young and w one is 20 years older and, and the mother of, of this other um, not not a character in the book, but part of her motivation. Um, it is um, uh -huh. long way down, long way down. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to come up with that name because I was thinking yeah, I've listened yeah. to this. And yeah. what's amazing yeah. is when the chapters are back to back, Kate Redding, 
you're hearing this move from this from this life weary mother back to this I can't give a shit teenager, and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's a lovely transition, and then in part because I think she knew what Simon was doing and what Scott was doing, because she's so spot on hits her version of how the two of them sound when those people come up as characters in her sections. Yeah. You know, yeah. She's not doing a Simon Vance imitation. She's not doing a Scott Brick imitation, but how they chose to do the characters definitely informs, you know, how those characters speak when they speak in her chapters. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I would have to say that Kate Redding was a strong influence to me. Um, I I was listening to a lot of her stuff when I was starting narrating myself, and 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 I was listening to yeah all all of those folks. So that also kind of brings back around the whole thing we've been talking about being in a character, and um, that's we get into the whole first person, third person, omniscient, you know, versus a localized point of view. And sometimes third person is just first person where you've changed the, you know, where you've changed the pronouns because you, you are so inside one Mm -hmm. person's head, but when it's not that kind of third person, does it feel different for you to do something from the, I did this, I did that versus the, she did this, he did that when it really is that pulled back point of view that is sort of seeing things, does it feel different to approach those works? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, not really, because, I mean, we can tell when it's still coming from the viewpoint of mm-hmm. the character, you know, whose chapter it is, say. How do I put this into words? I think the best narration uses that narrator voice for in-the-moment discovery as well as a character actually speaking in the story, if it serves. Not that I'm thrusting it in there where it doesn't belong. You know, she walked up the front walk and reached out her hand and rang the doorbell. <laughs> you know, that, the way that I did that, there was some backstory there. There's something in there. There's right. some subtext right. in there. Rather than she walked up the front walk, reached the front door, reached out her hand, and she rang the doorbell. You know, that. Right, two very different <laughs> reads. That was different. Um, because I, because. We are all of the visual atmosphere, too. I don't have the camera angle or the, you know, is this a long shot or a close-up or, you know, it's all in what we do with our voice. So when third person is not simply an excuse to use a different pronoun in first person, when it's not that, when it really is sort of that drawn-back omniscient, how free do you feel to allow the narrator to actually comment on the moment? 
How often yeah. does that feel like something you can play with? I I think I play with it. If we're looking at a spectrum of its repertage, and I am nonpartisan, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will, um, all the way to I'm fully in it and I'm involved in it, I tend more towards the involvement. As long as I'm not skewing things in a way they shouldn't be skewed. But even when I have nonfiction work, if I feel like this author is talking about the Mm -hmm. history of Poland, I won't go so far as to spit and burp every time I say the Teutonic Knights. But I will, you know, (laughs) give something to... And he lived a very long life. He he lived until he was right. an octogenaire. You know, that this dynasty of this family, and they finally got this person on the throne. And, you know, I could say he lived a long life. He was the king of Poland until he was whatever. I could say that absolutely mm-hmm. removed. Or I could say that with, if I feel like that section has been leading up to, ah, Finally, here is a, you know, someone who didn't get on the throne and die or didn't get on the throne and then lose all of these territories. If I feel like the author is kind of leading us to that, then I can bring some of, I like to bring some of that in because then it feels like that material reaches the listener better. I've often had people, and actually even even David Dorsch uh, had said this to me at one point early on when I was talking, we were talking about the difference between um, fiction and nonfiction. And David's point was to do nonfiction well, you have to be a really good substitute teacher. Uh-huh. I've uh. always taken that to heart because the basic idea is I've often found that if the kids know that I have a strong investment in the material, then they're more likely to remember whatever it is that I'm saying. So the idea that the teaching is in the subtext, the teaching Uh being in the subtext um, is not that the facts are related through the subtext as much as the opinions and everything that are shaping the facts, those things are all there. And so my excitement, my focus come out through how I manage the subtext in that nonfiction in that in that moment. And so I find that exactly what you're talking about, that you know, the the how you say something as simple as, and he lived a very long life, that delivered very differently will come across very differently. And and, and using those things to bring the audience with you if you're acting and you're on stage, you have one person's subtext to deal with. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're narrating the audiobook and it's fiction, you have everybody's subtext to deal with. And if you're narrating the audiobook right. and it's nonfiction, then you have your back at the author. And yeah. And you have to discover and channel their enthusiasm mm-hmm. for the subject because they've spent. I mean, this is their focus, their research. They've spent how long? Years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, but writing this book. Whatever the subject is, it that's their right. you know passion. So how can I discover that in a way that communicates that same connection to the topic? And I, I often think, 
man, if I had if I had ne'er if I had sat every book I was supposed to mm-hmm. read in college, if I had sat down and narrated it, I would have understood the material so yep. much better. <laughs> yep. But you know, of course, we no. don't have had time to do all of that. But um, but yeah, because we have to get inside right. of it. We have to get inside right, because of it. it's it's the understanding of the material which is what is coming through in the narration that isn't necessarily the shaping of the words. It's how the words are affecting you as you are narrating Mm -hmm. them that is making the connection, and that is what's uniquely human in the moment, I would have to say. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. These are great yeah. questions. Liz Wiley, thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down and have this conversation today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your care and thoughtfulness and your guidance in this discussion. Your presence and your voice are so centering and calming. Thank you. That I feel like even if I'm spinning off into, I don't know what I'm saying. Ah, don't worry, Stephen will bring me back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so what do you have coming out soon that, that you're excited about? Because this will take a little a little bit before I have this together. So what's coming out soon that that you'd like everybody to know about? Right. Um, I will talk about one I okay. just had come out. Um well, I, I just, I mean, a few weeks, I guess. It's called Appassionata, and it is the story of a family that's done very well in Southern California um, with their startup. And then the other characters that really becomes about are their um, personal household mm-hmm. servant, who is a Chinese immigrant, and then a Mexican immigrant down the mm-hmm. street who is struggling to get her green card. And um, so we're dealing a lot with issues of immigration, issues of racism, issues of classism. But the thing about this book, it's called Appassionata, after a, a music, Beethoven's mm-hmm. musical piece. And so we hear, um, we hear music layered in, not only between chapters, but sometimes within or underneath what's happening in a chapter. So every chapter has some piano happening, Hmm. and some of the music was even um, composed for the book. So it's a a real marriage of music and narration, which is exciting. Fantastic. And then, and then just to, just to touch on the, um, the music part again, and so maybe this is a theme. Um, the, the book that I'm just about mm-hmm. to record, and I think I can say this, it's called Five Part Invention. And for anyone who's um, been a piano student, I remember box two and three part inventions. It's called Five Part Invention because it's talking about five different generations of women. And there's a piano also as a as a main character, even mm-hmm. main player in the story. So so yeah, there's there's music in these stories, literally and by what yeah. we bring to it. How's that for I a think wrap that's up? great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 
I love talking to you, Stephen. Let's do it again. Okay. You have been listening to Serving the Story. This week's guest was Elizabeth Wiley, hosted by me, Stephen J. Cohen, with production assistance provided by Adriana Melendez and Olivia Arthen. Serving the Story is produced and distributed by Spoken Realms, found on the web at spokenrealms.com. Tune in again next time when our guest will be actor, author, and award-winning narrator, Julia Whelan.